0: Today's reading is from Revelation chapter 8 till the end of Revelation chapter 9. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne." The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire, mix of blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. "'and a third of the ships were destroyed. "'The third angel sounded his trumpet, "'and a great star, blazing like a torch, "'fell from the sky on a third of the rivers "'and of the springs of water. "'The name of the star is Wormwood. "'A third of the waters turned bitter, "'and many people died from the waters "'that had become bitter. "'The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, "'and a third of the sun was struck, "'a third of the moon and a third of the stars.' so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will, not, will, will elude them. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails of stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon that is, destroyer. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and months and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision, in my vision, looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is God's word.
1: Good evening. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar here, and it's my weighty pleasure to bring this uh, deep, profound, uh, shocking, disturbing passage of God's holy word to us. Let's pray for his help as we turn to it. Our Father God, you are glorious. You are holy, holy, holy. You are utterly unlike us. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. You are a God who has never had an evil, impure, unworthy, immoral thought, who has never done anything wrong. You are a God who is so perfect and pure that we could not bear to be in your presence. You are a God who responds to sinners by coming and dying, suffering yourself, the unbearable judgment we deserve. You are a God utterly unlike us. And our Father, we pray that tonight you would give us hearts that long to know the truth about you. Help us not to block our ears and harden our hearts when we hear things we do not like. But fill us with a longing to know the awesome, majestic, glorious God for who he is as he has revealed himself in his word, the Bible. And so we pray that your spirit would would lead us into truth. And we pray that as we read these words, you would help us to see the rightness of your judgment. And more than that, we beg you that you would give us hearts that repent, that we might meet the Lord Jesus with joy and not fear on that final day. Amen. What would you say is the gospel if you were asked by friends at work or at uni tomorrow and they say, go on, give us, uh, what is this Christian stuff you're into? What has it got to say to the modern world? One sentence, one phrase, one tweet, that's all I can handle. Just that length of statement. What has Christianity got to say to the world today? What would you respond God loves you. Jesus died for you. Just the other side of Buckingham Palace is Westminster Chapel. And in the middle part of the last century, God poured enormous blessing on the ministry there of the Reverend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh former surgeon who became a minister And saw really extraordinary blessing in the the middle of the 20th century. 1,600 seats every Sunday night, absolutely rammed with 20s and 30s and students wanting to hear the word of God as he proclaimed it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people converted (laughs) under his ministry. And towards the end of his, uh, his time there in 1980, he was asked in a television interview uh, about the, you know, the way that culture was moving further and further away from the church. The, the new generation hadn't been to Sunday school. They didn't believe in God. And uh, what, did, what did Christianity have to say to modern London in 1980? <laughs> and uh, he said, look, you know, people don't really believe in God. And the interviewer pressed him, what would you say to the secular man or woman who does not take Jesus seriously? Do you know what he responded? He quoted John the Baptist and said, flee the wrath to come. Flee the wrath to come. That's what Christianity has to say to a culture that is no longer interested in God. Now, Revelation 8 to 9, as we've just heard read, is full of complex, layered imagery steeped in the Old Testament, but at its heart is a very simple message that's set out explicitly there at the end of the reading, in verses 20 to 21. The trouble we see when we look out into the world, when uh, we look down into our phones, the trouble that we see is the judgment of God. God's trumpet blast to rouse a world that has rejected and ignores him. And the only right response is to repent, to turn to Jesus, in Lord Jones' words, to flee the wrath to come. Now, Revelation uh, 6 that we looked at last week, if you were here, it taught us to see that behind the seeming chaos of human history, behind the persecution of God's people, behind all of it, God is consistently working out his perfect purposes. The other side of the tapestry, the lamb who is slain has begun to reign and he is at work. And so while uh, wars ravage and epidemics terrify and famines uh, rage around the world, God is at work to bring his perfect justice on human wickedness, the wrath of the lamb and the awful words of Revelation 6.16. And God is at work to bring his people safely to salvation, to their eternal future. The whole of this section in Revelation asks us, what do you see? Do you see only what is happening on the surface events in the world? Or can you see what God is doing behind the scenes? Now, that's what's going on in the whole section, and it's not a chronological progression, each chapter describing something that happens a few decades later in human history, uh, like uh, as we said, a multi-perspective film like Pulp Fiction or a video replay at a sports event. It shows the same event from, from different camera angles. You know, the last goal that Arsenal concedes. Here, look look at this appalling piece of defending from somebody paid fifty thousand pounds a week who just stands there. And now look at it from another angle. Another person paid fifty thousand pounds a week who can't head a ball clear. And now from another angle. I, I need to get this off my chest. And but it's, you know, you know what goes on. Video replay. It's di- the same event, but you see it through different eyes. What was this player doing? What was this player doing? That's what's going on here. Drawing out different truths. So we get seven seals, then seven trumpets this week, then seven plagues, seven bowls of of wrath. And they're largely overlapping visions of the same history. I think that becomes very, very apparent when you look at the way that the first four trumpets echo the first four seals. We don't have time to look at it in detail. Um, You can follow it up when you get home. But I think the point is that what John wants us to do is to focus on what makes this different. What makes the trumpets different from the seals? Now you see some change of emphasis already in the introductory section. Dive in at uh, chapter 8 and verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand then the angel took the censer filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth and there came peals of thunder rumblings flashes of lightning and an earthquake now the judgment that's depicted there is thrown on the earth the, the thunder the lightning and the earthquake it comes directly as an answer to the prayers of God's people now, chapter 6 to 7 gave us a totally different perspective. There, they taught us, look, Christ, not chaos, rules over history. And they stressed God is sovereign over everything that's happened. He's decided what's happened will happen, and he's working out his purposes. God's sovereignty was stressed. Here, the agency of God's people is emphasized instead. The judgment happens because God's people pray. Same thing. Just looked at it from a different perspective. Judgment here comes because God's people pray. I read a prayer request this week from the Bishop of Bauchi State in northeastern Nigeria. Islamists have been conducting a brutal campaign against the, the Christians there, uh, stealing their cattle, torching the churches, slaughtering villages in some cases and he wrote the church worldwide should intensify prayer part of the battle against persecution is one on our knees different perspective shown in this passage picked up by that bishop god will judge god will rescue in response to his people's prayer okay so what else do the trumpets of chapter 8 help us to see about human history what other perspective do they give us the key thing The key thing is that God's judgment should prompt us to repentance. Yeah, we'll also see uh, there's a broader impact of God's judgment. But the key thing is God's judgment should prompt us to repentance. We should hear the trumpets and flee the wrath to come. You've got three points there. Uh, Creation itself is impacted by the judgment of God. Unbelievers suffer under the judgment of God. And humans harden their hearts. Under the judgment of God. So, chapter 8, verse 7. Uh, verse 6 Then the, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The four horsemen of chapter 6, they brought um, tyranny and chaos on humanity, but the trumpets focus on nature, on the physical world. Now, some commentators work hard to try to tie the four trumpets to particular contemporary events, and it's undeniable that the descriptions of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79, they do bear a striking similarity when you read the contemporary accounts. To the second trumpet, verse 8, the second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. But I don't think the point is that John wants us to try to work out which events these might link to. He wants us to see that the entire human environment is being impacted by God's judgment. The first trumpet strikes the earth, the second, the sea, the third, the fresh water, and the fourth, the sky. And humans suffer as a result. Verse 11, the poisoning of the waters leads to many deaths. But unlike the four horsemen, it is the natural order itself. The physical world seems to be the focus here of God's judgment. Now, why on earth does God do that? Does God not like the world? Well, it's not the world is guilty of sin or God doesn't care about it. Now, Proverbs 8 has God singing with delight as he creates the world. He's so delighted with what he's made. Now, this takes us back, I think, to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they brought misery and decay to the natural world. Adam and Eve were meant to be the rulers of the world. And, and in some profound way, the, the fate of the natural order was tied to Adam and Eve and their rule of creation. And so in Genesis 3.17, after Adam and Eve have rejected God and rebelled against him, God says, cursed is the ground itself because of you. So I have a car. Uh, please don't tell Greta Thunberg. The, uh, now, if I fail to obey the instructions, the, the maker's instructions for the car, if I stick diesel in rather than petrol, if I don't keep the tyres inflated, I'll let them get grazed against the kerb when I'm parking, and if I, I don't get it serviced, the car itself will suffer. And quite possibly other people will suffer when the brakes go or it breaks down in the middle of a motorway. The, the things we're responsible for, they can suffer if we fail to obey the rules. It's kind of an echo, uh, a faint glimmer of, of what's, what happened in creation with Adam and Eve. The, the creation itself suffered and fell with us. And so now the creation itself falls under the judgment of God. Okay, so what? I think the point here is that as we see wildfires ravage Australia, as rivers burst their banks in Britain, we are meant to hear alarm bells, trumpets of warning, to, to recognize that something is just not right in the world around us. The natural world is not in happy harmony. We're meant to look out and see the judgment of God is what we're looking at. And not the specific judgment of this river has flooded the house of that individual, so they must be particularly sinful, but the general judgment of a disordered creation, a world that's not at peace with itself and not at peace with us. We're meant to see the world convulsed and writhing in agony, a natural order that seems to be rising up against us sometimes. We're to see a natural order under the judgment of God. As we do so, I hope we see how, how much more serious the impact of our sin is than we realize. We love to think that our sin is just a private little thing between me and God. Sometimes it affects other people, but basically it's just an issue with me and God. And if God wasn't quite so precious about things, it would be all right. All creation is cursed and under judgment because of what I do, because of what you do because of what we as humanity do. We've brought God's judgment on creation. And as we see the judgment of God poured out, well, we need to turn back. We need to wake up and repent. Well, the second thing uh, that marks out the trumpets as being different from the seals, the, the second thing that we see uniquely in these chapters is that unbelievers suffer under the judgment of God. Verse 13, as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Flying eagle is an image of judgment in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 49 or Habakkuk 1.8. And a threefold repetition, only one other place in scripture, I think. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Unimaginably incomparably holy is the lord and here we are warned woe 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 something incomparably terrible is about to happen and as the eagle sweeps down it cries out the judgment woe 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 to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other 3 angels and these, these judgments, especially the next two trumpets, are very different indeed. Things really do ratchet up in intensity. You can see just the, the amount of space given to just two judgments. First verse of chapter 9, The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. The fallen angel is surely Satan. It's so similar to the description in Isaiah 14 of this angel who falls from heaven, cast out of heaven and released for a time on the earth. And he is, verse 11, the angel of the bottomless pits, the one who is the destroyer. And what he unleashes really is the stuff of nightmares. Verse 2, when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. The darkness of God's judgment appears as the pit is opened. Verse 3, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They'll long to die, but death will elude them. Now, the description here is it is a kind of exaggeration of, of the description of a of a locust. But it's clear these are not literal insects of the Acrididae, locustae migratoria. This is it's not some this is oh this is a technical description of locusts in, in weird language. They don't eat vegetation after all, verse four. And they have scorpions' tails. No, throughout the Old Testament, locusts are images of judgment. From the literal plague that fell on Egypt at the Exodus, to the foreign army that is to invade Israel in God's judgment in Joel 1-2. to It's an obvious choice as well when you think about it in that culture, given the absolute devastation that would come with locusts. Now, some people look at verses seven to eleven and they see, "Oh, this must be this is an ancient description of, of modern warfare." Uh, you know, the iron clad locust with wings that sound like thunder. This is this is an attack helicopter being predicted um, in ninety A.D. But I think that's to miss the point entirely. This is a spiritual army. It's led by a spiritual being, the angel over the the abyss. This is demonic. They've been judged by the risen Christ. Their condemnation is secure. And now for a temporary period, the five months of verse 5, they're released by Christ to enact judgment on sinful humanity. Now, if you were here last week, you'll, you'll have noticed there is a really striking difference from what happened when the seals were opened. In chapter 6 and 7, God's people suffer more intensely than anybody else. It, it's as if they are the focus of of all that happens that is painful. But here, God's people are sealed to protect them. The sealing that happened in verse in chapter seven and uh, in chapter six, and then the description of God's people at peace under the the altar of God. Well, now, now it's the unbelievers who suffer as God in His judgment allows Satan to afflict mankind. And so chapters 8 to 9, they remind us that, look, while God's people suffer physically terribly on earth, they are eternally safe, sealed and protected by Christ. And the awkward truth of these verses is that there are particular sufferings you do avoid if you turn to Christ, but that you leave yourself open to if you reject him. What can this mean? In what sense are the things that only torment unbelievers in this life? Well, let me suggest a couple of things. We've just studied uh, the wonderful promise of Romans 8.28 in midweek small groups. If you're part of a discipleship group, Uh, you'll probably remember it from this week. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, for the child of God, there is a lot of pain and frustration in this life, as much as there is for anybody else. It's true, Christians are not immune to the suffering of this world. We get sick, our relatives die, we get declared bankrupt, we have relationship breakdowns. But for the, fu- for the follower of Jesus, the child of God, there is the assurance, the comfort and the hope that God is at work through everything that happens to you whatever you go through in this life, and he is using it for your good. There is assurance that whatever happens, God is bringing you to glory. That as hard as life might be in this world, it's as bad as it can ever be for you. And we are heading to God's eternal paradise. For those who reject Jesus, I'm afraid those comforts are absent. Suffering is no longer a mark of God's love but a sign of his displeasure and a foretaste of eternal judgment. Likewise, it doesn't matter what you believe. All of us, as, as just as humans, know the feeling of guilt and shame when we've done something awful, really awful, and we've damaged other people, we've damaged our own reputation, and it's a miserable experience, no guilt and shame. But for those who trust in Jesus, there is the immense comfort and relief of knowing that Jesus has died and he has ultimately paid for my sin. And his blood washes clean the stain of my shame. But for the unbeliever, there is no defense to the devil's accusation that you are wicked, you are unworthy, you deserve hell. There is no defense for the devil's accusations for those who do not trust in Christ. Likewise, to face death, it is an awful thing. If you see the death of a close relative, or if you spend time with somebody who is coming towards their last days, it is an awful thing. It doesn't matter what you believe. Death is awful. But for the unbeliever, if you have no hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ... There's the tormenting dread that that beyond the physical death lies the awful, eternal, spiritual death of a separation from God forever and ever and ever. You see, to trust in Christ is to be sealed, protected from some things, free from the dread of guilt, free from the overwhelming shame of sin, free from the oppression of Satan's lies and his miserable accusations. We're affected by those things, but we can never be overwhelmed by them. Satan and all his demonic army do not have the power to drag even the weakest Christian down to hell. They're powerless to bring ultimate harm on anyone who has taken refuge in Jesus Christ. So the only sane response to these things is come to Christ. To put your trust in Jesus is a profound act of self-love just as to reject Jesus is an act of self-harm. Enjoy the refuge and the protection that he provides. We'll get to uh, the end of Romans 8, in a couple of weeks after the prayer meeting. And there we read these extraordinary verses. And these are what it means to be sealed and protected and secure. It means that you can know this. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Repent and know that as a truth for you. Thirdly, finally, humans harden their hearts under the judgment of God. Chapter 9, verse 13. Verse 12 tells us, The first woes passed, the two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. And the four angels that have been bound are released, and first fifteen The four angels who've been kept ready for this very hour and day and months and this year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice ten thousand times ten thousand. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulphur. Their heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulphur. A third of mankind was killed by the plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes. This hideous army of 200 million, a figure that's basically just substantially more than the entire population of the Roman Empire at this time. It it rides out to decimate humanity. And after the spiritual torments of the first half of chapter 9, Now, physical death and the eternal judgment that surely follows afterwards. It is easy to get hung up on the terrifying cryptic description of the demonic cavalry. But the key point here is is not why is it described this way? What do the individual features mean? Why these three colors? Why snakes in the tail rather than scorpions? The key thing comes at the end. Verse 20. The rest of humanity who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. The rest of humanity witnesses the destructive judgment, the wrath of the lamb and, well, we shrug our shoulders and just carry on. Believing what we've always believed, behaving as we've always behaved. I mean, the end. I don't know if you saw in those verses. It's basically all of the Ten Commandments being summarised. We carry on disobeying God in every way we can imagine. Just as Pharaoh's heart became harder and harder and harder through the plagues, so today it's so tragic as people look out and see the judgments of God. They don't hear the trumpet blast calling to repentance. They just. Turn up the volume on life, drown it out and get on with living as always we've lived. And when they do see God's hand in it, they just become embittered against him, angry at what he's doing. There's been uh, lots in the news this week about our troubled planet. I mean, the frankly biblical amounts of rain that have fallen on Britain this winter. Uh, I mean, I, I'd like to see what's going to happen the moment one of the water companies announces a hosepipe ban this summer. There'll be, there'll be some serious trouble. But there's, there's been lots of editorials. I don't know if you've uh, read them in the papers. Huge numbers of things about we need to invest much more heavily in flood defences. We need to cut back on the use of fossil fuels because the rising global temperature seems to be exacerbating extreme weather events. But there has not been a single editorial. Not one. Asking, I wonder, all this chaos and disorder in creation, I wonder if it might indicate that things aren't quite right. And that humanity is not in the best place with our creator. No one is writing that. There's been lots of hand-wringing about the appalling way we treat each other. We furiously denounce the tabloids and the Twitter mobs for hounding Caroline Flack to death. But only weeks earlier, we bought those tabloids and clicked on the links to follow the salacious details of the story. And, And in response to all of that, lots of comments about the need to protect privacy and be more attuned to spot those whose mental health makes them vulnerable. But nothing, nothing asking whether the frankly demonic way we sometimes treat each other might not indicate there's something seriously wrong with humanity. C.S. Lewis described famously suffering as God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But alas, alas, our response too often is just to turn up the volume of everything else and drown it out with Netflix and work. Well, how should we respond? It's a sobering, nightmarish vision of judgment in these chapters. And how should we respond? Come back to the beginning of chapter 8. Verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. It's where the passage began with all humanity silenced by the judgment of God. All our bluster, our excuses, our self-deception, it dissolves before the penetrating gaze of the Almighty. And as you read through the rest of chapters 8 and 9, you realize we have only two options. We can either, you can either face his unbearable judgment on that final day, or today you can repent and turn to Christ. They're the only two options. And they apply to every single one of us. Now, if you've not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, I would be failing to love you if I did not plead earnestly with you right now. Look around. There is something seriously wrong with the world. Judgment is coming. We read about trumpet blasts in this passage, but one day soon another trumpet is going to blast and it will announce the return of Jesus Christ and it'll be a moment of great joy and delight to all who trust in him. But it will also be the moment when it is too late for those who have not turned to put their trust in him. Listen to the trumpets. Heed the warning of judgment Allow the trumpets of Revelation 8 to 9 to rouse you to repent. Put your trust in Jesus tonight. Now to repent is simply to turn around. That's all it means. It means to stop going my way, this way, and to turn back to God, to go his way, to cling to Jesus Christ, to trust that the God who pours this judgment on the world He stepped into our place and absorbed a far greater judgment himself on the cross. To repent is to cling to him, to follow him. Repentance begins the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And that could be tonight, and I hope it is for some here. And then every day afterwards, we resolve not to go my way, but to repent and follow Jesus. Now, I know uh, many people here and... The majority of us have put our trust in Jesus. And I guess you'll be sitting there thinking, well, I am safe from eternal judgment. So what what is there here for us? Well, I guess it does. This passage confronted me this week with the sins that I cling to, that I tolerate, that I'm indifferent to. Wilderness, idolatry, specific habits. You see here, look how God responds to sin. If I call myself a follower of Jesus, how much do I share my God's attitude to sin? How much do I share his horror and hatred of sin? If we're serious about God, if we claim to love him, it should bother us if his attitude to sin is wildly different from mine. So I need to ask myself, is my life marked by a radical repentance? And a daily desire to be as rid of sin as I can. I wonder if too many of us over the years, we forget what repentance truly involves. Life is like a train journey. Repentance is changing direction. You you see it on the tube all the time. Someone gets on on the tube just as the doors close. There's a leap on and there's that... That sort of smug London a moment of, I haven't wasted even a second waiting on the platform for the train. Not a second of my life has been wasted. Oh, yes, I, I have just won at London. And then one stop later, there's that sort of confused look as the next station is announced. And then the horror of, I've got on the wrong train. <laughs> I'm going the wrong direction. Uh, and what do they do? They don't just sit there. They get up, leg it off the train, and get on a train going the other way because, oh my goodness, I've now wasted six minutes. <laughs> what if you've not wasted six minutes, but you've angered Almighty God? What if you've indulged the sins that caused Jesus to be nailed to the cross, the sins that caused the wrath of God to be poured on this world? Where repentance at that point is not, well, I stay on the train, but I do feel really bad about it sometimes. Or I stay on the train, but I admit to to my accountability buddy, my prayer partner, that that it's not great. And, and we pray about it, and they tell me off, but I stay on the train. It's not, well, every now and then I get off the train, and I wait on the platform for a bit, and then I get back on another train heading in the same general direction. Repentance is I... I get off this train, I cross over the platform and I get on a train going in the entirely opposite direction. It's not perfection, but it is a fundamental change of direction in life. Hear the trumpets, see the judgment, feel the holiness of God. Whether for the first time or the umpteenth time, take sin seriously Take God seriously, repent and follow Christ. Let me pray. Our Father God, we are so very sorry for uh, what a slack attitude we often have towards you. We read these words and they frighten us, they sober us, they shock us. But we pray that we would, we would stop seeing sin as a small thing. We pray that we would see the disorder of this world and wake up, that we would see the severity of the judgment and that we would flee the wrath to come, that we would run to our savior. We would turn to follow Christ. Help us, we pray, to have genuine, real repentance. Help us, we pray, to cling to Jesus. Thank you that he has paid for every last drop of sin. Amen.